shim shiminy, shim shiminy, shim shim boeing. Sorry, I don't know the rest of the words. Hello. I don't know the rest of the words. Oh, hello and welcome to episode 219 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz, and also here this week with Seth Miller of PaxX.Arrow, special guest during AIX here in Hamburg. Say hello, Seth. And musician on retainer, apparently. Sorry about that, everybody. Yeah, joining us in musical form. No, we, we thought we needed a, a slightly different intro this week, so we're going with it. But Jason and Seth are in Hamburg, Germany, as is the case every year or almost every year for the uh, Aircraft Interiors Expo, which we will talk about slightly later in the show. But we're going to dive in and talk about, it's not quite breaking news, but one of the airplanes is still in the air. So I guess this kind of counts as as breaking news. Definitely broken. It's definitely broken news. An Air India 777-200LR on its way from New Delhi to San Francisco on Tuesday, June 6th. One of the engines had an issue and the aircraft happened to be over northeastern Russia. And so it diverted to Magadan in eastern Russia on the Sea of Ushtokshk. And so the breaking part of this news, beyond the engine being broken, is that the rescue flight is currently in the air to collect the passengers from Magadan and take them onward to San Francisco. The reason we're talking about this is not because an aircraft had an engine issue. It's not because there was a diversion. It's not because... Air India is sending a rescue plane. It's because we're back in a situation where there's an aircraft on the ground in a country where it is going to be nearly impossible to cut through all of the red tape to get the aircraft fixed. With an added twist this time of that flight having been bound to a country where it is not recommended that citizens of that country go to Russia right now. I'm not even sure if you're allowed to do that. So this definitely differs quite significantly from the Norwegian Air 73 MAX landing in Iran, where yes, the aircraft was not going to have a good time because of of the sanctions, but that aircraft wasn't going to the US. In this case, it is a, a whole other world of diplomatic and really just logistical nightmare for many of the passengers on board that aircraft. Just It seems like they're being treated well, given the circumstances. It is not a large town by any stretch of the imagination. So they are being, these hundreds of people are being accommodated as best as the locals can do. You can't fall from there. But this is, uh, I don't know, have we just found the newest addition to Aeroflot's fleet here? Well, I don't think so. Mostly because I don't think that Air India would be very happy if they didn't get their plane back. But the real issue becomes, so Jason alluded to or mentioned what, what I was kind of alluding to is the Norwegian air diversion. The aircraft is flying from Dubai, I think, to, to Stockholm and diverted not long after takeoff, diverted to Shiraz, Iran in December of 2018. That was a 737-8 MAX, and that was an engine issue. Aircraft diverted, landed safely, passengers were taken care of overnight, and then they, they left the next day. But the aircraft spent 70 days in Iran, because even though they had said, yeah, the export license shouldn't be a problem, we'll bring in the, the new engine, we'll bring in the maintenance tax, we'll bring in all of that, it ended up taking months, literally months, to get all of the licensure from the the US Department of Treasury to get the export technology license to be able to send the engine there. 
And then they had to be able to actually get it there and do the replacement work on the Leap 1B. So that took 70 days. It was just an issue of sanctions. There was no other issues involved. And this is also just an issue of sanctions, but they're a different set of sanctions, right? Right. So like you, Ian, I don't think that this plane ends up becoming spare parts for Aeroflot. Yay, though, verily, they might want that. They certainly need some spares. I do think eventually they get it sorted and get it out. It would be a diplomatic nightmare between Russia and India. And these days, India has been not outright supportive of Russia, but certainly not against its invasion of Ukraine nearly as vocally as other countries. So Russia kind of needs that support where it can get it. The interesting thing to me here is going to be there are only two airlines that can transport a GE90 engine. One of them can't fly outside of Russia, really. The other definitely won't fly into Russia. So so that's... (laughs) That's the other thing. I mean, because I'm talking about Volga Dnieper's fleet of Antonov 124s, and then I'm talking about Antonov Airlines' fleet of 124s. Can they bolt it onto a 747 in the fifth engine position and ferry it in that way? Let it windmill? I mean, like setting aside the legal maneuvers to be able to export the engine there, I don't know physically how they're... I mean, are they going to have to truck it into Russia, I guess, maybe? And then fly it over on a Volga Dnieper 124, or I honestly don't know what the logistics are going to look like. But it's also in such a, they're going to have to fly it in because there's no way that you can drive something to, to, to Magadan. I mean, that's, I suppose a boat might work and then a oh, truck. Sure, sure. Because it is on the coast. So, I mean, we might see, you know, see it flown to Japan and then they take a boat up from somewhere in Japan. But I mean, setting aside the export license issues, the logistics and the legal maneuvers to be able to fly this engine in or just get it delivered, that's going to be you know a project in and of itself. This aircraft is not going, I don't think it's going to be stuck there, but I definitely don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. Add another angle to the conversation, and I'm, I'm pretty Let's sure the, do it. the answer is no, but it's something I thought about, and that is, earlier today, is should the facilities available at diversion airports beyond, is there a runway? come into play when planning flights and routes. Like Jason said, they're being taken care of as best they can. But in this case, that's cots in a high school gym for most of the passengers. There's just not enough hotel rooms in in the town to handle the 200-something people. And way better than crashing. Obviously, safety comes first. Divert the plane when you get an engine issue. I get that. But should airports that don't really have facilities for the passengers that are in them in the plane, be considered valid diversion points for the plane flying above. In my opinion, I don't necessarily see anything fundamentally wrong with that since the odds of ending up at any one of those possible diversion airports is so, so small until it happens. And then suddenly it becomes a very real issue. But I'm assuming there are a whole bunch of routes where if you took that into account, suddenly those routes would would no longer be feasible. ETOPS basically dies in many markets. So I get it, but it's interesting to me. There should maybe be contingency plans on the side of the airline to be prepared for this, which Air India, I doubt they had any such plans for landing at this particular airport. But again, everyone seems to be doing the best they can. It it does seem to me that it probably took Air India a little too long to dispatch a new aircraft to get those stranded passengers out of there. I think it was like a full day guaranteeing that these passengers are going to be on the ground there and high school gym or whatever for for days rather than as little time as possible. So we'll have to see at the end of this whole saga 
if anything could have been done better? And the answer is always yes. So the one thing about the Air India, you know, operation that that is interesting and at least in my mind, well done. Did it take a little while to get this aircraft in the air? Yeah, the the aircraft I think was supposed to leave yesterday at about nineteen hundred UTC and and ended up leaving. I want to say at about noon UTC today on Wednesday. So it was supposed to leave Tuesday evening UTC and, and, and left Wednesday midday. But the interesting thing to me is that they're going to continue the flight. So they're going to get everybody to San Francisco. So they're flying in what I assume is two crews because this is a, I mean, from from New Delhi to Magadan is a nine and a half hour flight roughly. And so, so that's almost a, a full duty day there. And then you've got the continuation of the, you know, being on the ground, refueling, and then continuing the flight. So they're they're bringing a bunch of Air India staff, and they've also pre-catered, like they they've, they're bringing everything that they need for the continuation flight. I, I assume, except for fuel, and they'll just refuel and and move on. So I think that's at least well done. Maybe they brought multiple crews, but maybe they didn't. Maybe they're just relying on the crew that's already stranded there. They're, they're they've hit their rest time, right? I suppose that's true. I don't know if being on on a high school gym is too restful, but legally, probably. Apparently, crew got hotels. Okay. So so maybe they are relying on that that particular crew. It's possible. But it sounds like it's all going to work out for at least the passengers quickly enough. It'll be interesting to see how long this aircraft sits on the ground. So set your alerts. The registration of the stranded aircraft is VT... A-L-H. So Victor Tango Alpha Lima Hotel. Set an alert. And and you can't say that Air India didn't have an idea something like this could happen. I believe I read just the day prior <laughs> at IATA annual general meeting in, in Istanbul, Scott Kirby, the mm-hmm. CEO of United, literally warned are kind of pleaded with other airlines flying to the US but are still using Russian airspace. Hey, maybe you should stop doing that. And then literally the following day, this happened. Are you saying Scott Kirby caused this diversion? <laughs> I mean, I don't think he would do that no. to a fellow Star Alliance member airline, but no. we can't rule and, it out. And to be fair, his position is based almost entirely on the economics of United Airlines and other US carriers being disadvantaged by not being able to overfly Russia. What's interesting to me here is that there are two things I wanted to bring that up, Jason, and I'm glad you did. There are two things to me here. One, I mean, to Seth's point, Kirby's complaint, he couched it in safety terms, which I think is truly disingenuous because there's nothing that we've seen that would say flying over Eastern Russian airspace is any less safe than it was a year ago or two years ago. I think that's disingenuous. His his argument was is that there could be Americans on the plane, and if you have to divert, which there are ostensibly Americans on this aircraft, it was flying from India to the United States. So one would assume that out of the 216 passengers, at least one of them is probably an American citizen. And we're seeing, and and you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, right right after this happened. Well, we're seeing it play out where it it doesn't seem to be an issue. But the other thing here is that with the competition issue, I wish I could find it now, but I remember someone saying before from an airline that this was in regard, this was a European airline talking about Chinese airlines that were still flying over Russian airspace to get from China to Europe. And 
saying it doesn't matter because those passengers that we're dealing with flying in between, they're going to choose us anyway because they want to fly on our airline as opposed to they're just looking for the cheapest price. Yeah. And to be fair, I also, I don't think Americans are actually banned from Russia. I I think you could still go. It's on the DODs or the State Department's do not travel to list, but I don't think you're actually prohibited from going to Russia. So it's not like they're going to arrest you at the border, detain you, but they could. That's the problem. That's the question is the local police chief, someone who's really into the Russian cause and will arrest an American on site. That's, I think, the question. I don't think that's going to happen. But there is not a, a ban or prohibition on, on Americans actually going to Russia. Right, right. Anyway. The rescue flight into Magadan is about 25 minutes from landing. Hopefully, they're not on the ground very long. They refuel and they get on their way. It has been a very long ordeal for those folks. And then we'll see how long the aircraft manages to to stay on the ground in eastern Russia or when it departs again. I mean, I it would be – I don't know about amusing is the right word, but it would be – a little funny to me if, if it was one of those things where it was just an indicator light. Yeah, nothing's they, actually like, broken. It's just, you know, they had to actually broken. the computer. Yeah, and, and they turn happens. everything back on. They're like, it's okay. <laughs> it happens. So we'll see. Let's switch from engines to the actual airframe. There is another issue with quality control on the 787, and we're back to shims. It's always with the shims on the 787. We should really do some research to figure out what keeps happening with those things and how we can fix it and tell Boeing. Right. We should become the world-leading experts in carbon fiber, plastic, composite, tolerances, technology, and shimming. Let's do it. So Boeing says that this particular issue is an attachment fitting on the horizontal stabilizer of some 787s. So the the issue now affects aircraft that have been manufactured but not yet delivered could affect up to about 90 planes, but Boeing says not a problem. It'll take about two weeks to investigate and solve the situation. And we expect our full year guidance between 70 and 80 787 deliveries to remain. That that's We're sticking with that guidance. Didn't they just yeah, increase production? Yep, sure did. Like last week. They over shimmed it. Too much shimming. Yeah. Improper shimming around a bracket on the horizontal stabilizer of the Boeing 787. The the irony, of course, being that with the carbon fiber and the super modern CAD design and the exacting tolerances, this was a plane that really wasn't supposed to have shims at all. And now that's proving to be multiple times a necessary fix. So many shims. So shims, many shims everywhere. So my question to the internet yesterday was why are we always shimming things? Because I was under the impression that you build these, they're either made to tolerance, or if they're not, then you you ditch them and you do it again, because that's how these carbon fiber plastic composites work. Apparently, that's not the case. And so you end up with things not as exactly as they should be, and then you use shims. And apparently, there's been a rash of improper shimming to meet the tolerance and fit things into where they uh, are supposed to be. So this doesn't seem like one of those things where they're going to have to study and look for a fix and things like that. It just seems like it was done wrong and needs to be done right, which I I guess is a good thing to catch. And and if it's an easy fix, it's an easy fix. But man, that's a a lot of shimming problems. 
Yeah, not great. Not a surprise at this point. It feels like a weekly news cycle of finding something out about a Boeing aircraft that's not quite right. Not the biggest deal in the world, but just shouldn't have happened. And here we are again. I feel bad. One of the the issues, I guess, that's important to mention here is that all of the work here is done by a supplier. And then the finished product, or what is supposed to be the finished product, is brought to the assembly factory and then attached to the aircraft. And so we're kind of back to the maybe distributing manufacturing for the aircraft around the world and then hoping it all fits together wasn't the best decision that they've ever made. In hindsight, that was fundamentally flawed. They probably won't do that again. The, the other thing, I mean, I just throw out there, you know, talking about it's not that big a deal and this and that. Obviously, they will get the fix done right. It will be safe to fly, etc. But airlines are facing so many delays in getting their new aircraft. Ultimately, this is bad for consumers. Fares are higher. Flights are being canceled because the capacity is yeah. there. The planes aren't there. This isn't a just Boeing's bottom line, ha ha ha, suck it investors kind of story. Real people are dealing with this too. I think Flight Global ran a piece after or coming out of the IATA AGM this week that quoted an airline executive saying, if we get planes six months late, they're not late. Yeah. And you see these quotes from airlines saying, no, 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 we expect all of these on the planes are going to show up on time and don't worry about it. And then they're lying. We're not going to get the planes on time. So who's who's being disingenuous and, and who's not telling who the full story? I mean, is it is it the airlines telling their passengers? Is it the manufacturers telling the airlines? Is it just a, a chain of, oh, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And then it's not fine. All of the above. Fair enough. All right, gentlemen, you are in Hamburg, Germany. We are. That means that you must be there for the annual Aircraft Interiors Expo. And this year, there's actually been some pretty neat, if not earth-shattering technologies, but some some solid improvements all around. I would love to hear about a few of Yes, we have to talk about how we got here first, though. Let's do that. Even that's a story. Seth, you, 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 that's live, always in, fun. you live in Europe now. I, think, I do. Right? My wife is very happy that she has a European boyfriend. <laughs> this is very sexy. What can I say? I came over. It's the singing. Yeah. <laughs> Forgot about that. I came over actually before Memorial Day. I've been over here 19 days now as we're recording this. I came over on the daytime flight on British Airways from Boston to London and connected that same evening onward to Dublin. Spent a few days in Dublin at a conference. From there, flew on Ryanair to Poznan, Poland. Spent nine days in Poland, tooling about and basically working from Poland, essentially, and seeing a friend and otherwise enjoying myself. And then took a train, or two trains, actually, the Polish Intercity and then Deutsche Bahn Intercity Express from Poznan to Hamburg. So it's been quite the adventure, I will say, British Airways economy is more comfortable on a daytime flight than on a nighttime flight because I didn't have to worry about actually trying to sleep. That checks out. The morning flight is the way to go. If I need to go to London and I have say in the matter, I will always take the morning flight. Yeah. Daytime flight to Europe is glorious. I love it. It's a shame that it's not available from more places, but the logistics and timing, it's really hard to make it work financially and there are very few of them i i think there's actually three out of new york and maybe one or two uh, boston and, and sometimes there's one even out of dulles i think london has dulles new york boston chicago 
Toronto right, has that. Toronto has service on Air Canada and Halifax on a Max, if I remember correctly. Right, when well. that's allowed to fly. Yeah. So there are a few. It's also worth pointing out Reykjavik in the summer has a Boston and a New York flight, and Istanbul has a JFK flight. It leaves at like six in the morning and gets in at just before midnight. So technically it qualifies. Ugh, sounds awesome. That's a weird. It's built for flight? onward connections into Europe and the, I affectionately refer to as the stands, former Soviet states. I don't know what we actually call them. I don't know. I literally don't know what they're actually supposed to be called geographically. But those flights often are a late night turn where it's a sort of terrible three or four hour red eye in and then a four or 5 a.m. return back. But you leave Istanbul sort of just after midnight. So they sort of work. Very nice. Yeah, all right. But I love the daytime flight. Jason had much more adventures than I did, which is bizarre given what I did. I mean, I almost didn't. I, I had crate trip here until I almost didn't. I flew Air France on the very early, but not earliest flight of the day, the 5.30 flight out of JFK, which was fine. I, I happened to snag the new Air France business class. It was only the aircraft's third turn with that new cabin, so everything was really nice. And then I got to uh, De Gaulle bracing for the worst because my experience there last year was just hectic craziness and it was empty there was nobody there it was amazing i got to go to the lounge and take a shower and have a meal i don't know what happened but it was a really great experience and then i uh, that was on a triple seven three hundred er then i connected onto a year old a22300 so both aircraft had air france's latest greatest newest everything it was a great flight and then we were about 145 feet from landing here in Hamburg. So close that I'm taking pictures of the Lufthansa Technique hangars and the aircraft hanging out in front of it. 145 feet, we go around. And I go, huh, that's peculiar, but it happens. And the crew gets on the, uh, the cabin crew gets on the PA very quickly and says, obviously, something has happened and we're going around. The, the flight crew will be with us momentarily. So that's good. And then the flight crew makes a long announcement in French. And I go, oh, no, he's not going to say it in English. And immediately he says in English that there was a bomb threat at Hamburg Airport. And the entire airport is closed. And we have 20 minutes of fuel for holding. I guess they didn't anticipate any sort of issues on this flight, no holding of any sort. So they didn't take much extra fuel. They gave us 20 minutes of holding before we'd have to divert to Bremen in Germany, which is not all that far from here. And thankfully, after 17 minutes of circling, we were the airport very quickly cleared its situation and we were able to land. And that, and that was that. So it was three minutes away from having a very, very different day. And that's it. That sounds like more excitement than you needed. Yeah, everyone was very calm. I mean, it seems like that kind of happens not with not regularly, but more frequently than it does in the states. Airports randomly closed for some sort of threat, or if you are in Gatwick, seemingly commonly for a drone of some sort. So there was no no panic on board. Nothing. Everyone just continued along their day. I will say, I actually I had a go around on BA in Boston back in April. And similarly, the crew, cabin crew, was on incredibly quickly. In my case, the cabin crew spoke on behalf of the pilot and said, everything is fine, don't worry, said more than probably was reasonable. Everything was fine, and we shouldn't, didn't need to worry, but they didn't necessarily know that at the time, right? So, right, yeah, they, they like, don't have any idea what's fine. going on. They right. know where they're not going where they're supposed to. They yeah. don't know what happened. 
There's Frank Dribben. Everything's fine. Disperse. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> except we couldn't disperse. We were on an airplane. It was very interesting to have that experience and have the announcement very quickly. When I've been on U.S. carriers that have a go around, the cabin crew, in my experience, does not get involved in that. And obviously, it seems to be a different sort of training and policy decision between European and U.S. carriers. And from a comfort for the passenger's perspective, I'm sure that that announcement is very nice. Obviously, like, on our go-around, I, was, I said it out loud before, like, anybody said anything. You feel the engine spool up. And it's like, yep, going around. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, my neighbor was like, what? I'm like, we're not landing now. And then we didn't land. But it's, it's going to be another 20 minutes. Yeah, you can feel it, right? But And so it was fine. But it was it's interesting to me the difference between the yeah. U.S. and the European carriers now that I've done it a few times on each. Yeah, it, it was quite frankly very nice that the, the Air France crew, the cabin crew, almost immediately as soon as they made an announcement – and the flight crew, thankfully, made the announcement not just in French, but also in English for people like me. So that was very nice. I didn't have to look around to anyone around me and say, hello, did anyone understand that announcement? Anyone? Anyone? No. It was, are we good? Is everything fine? Are we good? Is, is anything on fire? No. Okay. It's just a bomb threat. No big deal. But no, it was really great. Hat off to Air France. Everything was handled really, really well. I hope I can replicate that on my, my return trip in a few days. I hope so too. So tell me about the show. What I don't want to say what what's coming to an aircraft soon because as we all know, things that happen at AIX take uh, years to actually make it out of the aircraft. Is a very relative term in this industry. But what is in the process of coming to an aircraft near you? So for me, the star of the show, and I think most of what we've got to talk about is seating on the aircraft here. The star of the show in many ways was the Delta Flight Products. Doesn't really have a name, but the group that's helped driving the program is called Air for All. Air, the number four, all. And it's a handy or a wheelchair mount seat. Powered wheelchair. So you can roll onto the plane on a single aisle using a powered wheelchair. Seats 1A and 1B or 1D and F, however they're labeled, would be a pair. The aisle seat becomes with a very, very simple sort of mechanical mechanism, converts from a regular seat to the seat part flips out of the way, the cushions get stowed, and you can, and it has tie-down hooks on board, and you can roll a wheelchair on under its own power, and the passenger can remain in their wheelchair for the flight, which is huge. Yeah, it's pretty great. Since today, this whole situation requires the passenger checking their powered wheelchair on board, which leaves it in all sorts of jeopardy of getting damaged, lost, and these cost thousands of dollars if it's damaged and, and just it, it's life-changing if it's lost or damaged beyond repair. And in this case, today, they would have to be transferred to a, a regular wheelchair inside the airport. And then an even worse, I guess you would call it an aisle wheelchair to actually board the aircraft and then transfer that passenger from the horrible aisle wheelchair onto the actual seat. And in that case, they, they get to enjoy the actual seat as, as best they can. But in this case, the, the whole chair kind of just folds up and away, gets out of the way. They have these big, at least in the current iteration, which they said is approximately 20% uh, completed. It's a concept, maybe not a concept now, but an early product development yeah. prototype, you would say. And they have these two hooks in the back that hooks onto the wheelchair and kind of repels it back into position. And then two more hooks in the front that really secure it 
into place, which is really nice, really interesting for a segment of airline passengers who have has historically in recent history had put up with way too much. Oh, crap. We probably have to bleep that out. But they have put up with way too much been ignored and this is it, it's nice to see a major company that you've probably never heard of before delta flight products is a subsidiary of, of delta airlines it does not mean that delta will install this on board its aircraft although it, it sure seems like they will at some point but other airlines will be able to buy this product theoretically from delta flight products to install on their a320 series aircraft and hopefully it should fit in the 737s as well the other thing i'll say you know just in the timeline scenario Yes, nothing happens quickly in aviation, but they are t- Delta Flight Products is talking about potentially having it certified within 18 months, which basically takes an act of God. I mean, that is amazingly quick for something in the state. And that's time to certification. Then they actually have to manufacture it. Then yeah, the airline has to they buy do that it and then install it. Yeah. Then, yes, it's not going to be flying in 18, but that is still very quick. And there has been discussion, I understand, with the FAA about even trying to fast track it a little bit if they can. So because of the impact it has on accessibility. I mean, right, the Chris from Flying Disabled, who has been driving this program, he spent eight years at this point trying to get this to happen, basically said to me when we were talking about it, it's like, you know, when wheelchair user loses or has their chair damaged, it's the equivalent of me taking a baseball bat to your knees and, or a saw to your knees and cutting them off. You literally can't go anywhere. And so people don't travel because it's not worth that risk. Yeah. And I did see some commentary on Twitter when I posted about this uh, saying, oh, well, that just means the the downside of this is that those passengers will have to sit in their wheelchair for many hours unable to recline. And this is not targeted for long haul flights. This is this iteration of the product will end up on short haul aircraft that will operate for maybe five hours. And those people are used to spending extended periods of time in their wheelchair. That's how they live. So. Again, it opens up opportunities. It is, yes, unfortunate that they are not able to enjoy the actual seat on board the aircraft. But I think most people in the situation would be more than happy to trade that off for getting their chair on board and knowing for sure that they're not going to come out the other side of their arrival airport and their wheelchair is, is damaged or gone in some cases. Yeah, no, I can only imagine how truly awful it is to have to worry about that every time you fly, especially if you're flying on a regular basis. I mean, to wonder if, you know, am I going to be able to move after the flight lands or has the airline, you know, forget the airline losing your bags. That's horrible enough. But then imagine when you get there, your bags knock on, it's your legs are missing. That's not great. Yeah. So that's, I mean, amazing if it gets certified that fast, but even, I think it's just great to see that a company has decided to finally tackle this problem once and for all, and hopefully they get it you know, on aircraft as quickly as possible. What else did we see, Seth? What were some of the other headlining items? There was also, at the other end of the seating spectrum, Recaro Aircraft Seating is one of the major suppliers, has a product called the Extend Seat. That's X-T-E-N-D. Um, I don't want to talk about this one, but I guess we need to. We need to. So this is... I I feel like if we ignore it, if we don't look at it, it will go away. But that's not real. That's not real, I'm afraid. This is a seat design for the exit rows, the emergency exit rows of an overwing exit row. And today, you're required, I believe, to have 13 inches of clearance between the seat and the seat back in front for people to be able to get out. 
Today, it's the seats you're guaranteed to have extra legroom right. or a normal right. amount of legroom where the rest of the seats are terrible. Can be much smaller. Fair. What they've done here is basically created a design where the seat pan is split in half or, you know, 30, 70, something like that. And part of it flips down. It is mechanically operated. So if you are not seated in that row or in that seat, it will remain down. Once you sit down on the 70% of a seat that you have available normally, you reach underneath your legs and pull the rest of the seat up. It, it does not into- reach flush with the rest of the seat cushion, though. Correct. There is an indentation, and it's maybe half an inch, a couple centimeters below where the rest of the thing is. So when I tried it, my legs didn't even touch it. So it really was just like I had 70% yeah. of a seat cushion under me. And then when you stand up, that's annoying. Yeah, there's a spring-loaded clip inside, essentially, that when you stand up, that clip releases and it flips down, making it safe for emergency action. Not immediately. It's like an egg timer situation where you stand up and it counts down. The, the little pressure-sensitive thing springs up, and after like two seconds, the thing goes ka-chunk, and the, the seat kind of reverts to its folded-down position. And that's so that if there is an emergency where they do need to use that exit, nobody actually has to do anything to get that seat out of the way. So the interesting thing about this is it probably saves three or four inches of pitch, which seems silly because what do you do with three or four inches of pitch? You can't put an extra row in because you have three or four inches of pitch. It only really works in the second of the exit rows of the overwing because the one in front of it still, you can't move it forward and actually block the window. Maybe you can if you take the window seat out, then you have like, you know, B and C or D and E, but not A or F. But so there's some interesting challenges there, but I was thinking about it more and it seems like the idea would be you take those few inches and you take an inch away from everything else behind the exit row. And now all of a sudden it looks like you've got a full row of extra seats you can put in. So it's not just those seats that are getting worse. It it. might be everybody or the back half. Oh, that sounds like it's a solution in search of a problem to my mind. Yes. I hope this never sees the light of day. I am relatively convinced that there are markets where it might make sense. They are markets where exit row ancillary fee pricing has not yet really become compelling. So U.S. not going to see it because the airlines have gotten good enough at selling those seats for 70 right. to $150 or whatever it may be. I mean, the high numbers are really long haul, but whatever. You get the idea, right? They can make more money that way than trying to get extra seats on board. So. Maybe Southeast Asia, where on average people are a little shorter, so the extra legroom isn't as compelling. And but I need those seats density. because I, well, right when we flew via jet, those were the only seats I could fit in for the exit row. I remember I was not in that row with you. <laughs> yeah, you made a mistake. You had you had an experience. It wasn't a mistake. But what else did we see? And the last one that I thought was super interesting, and you spent more time looking at this, was the fancy lavatory demonstration model. And this is very much. Far down oh, the line, you mean the one, the one with Collins the camera and the screen in it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, the camera's not in the laboratory to make that. Yeah. yeah uh, the, okay. The, that was the, my the first screen, question. The flexible OLED screen is in the laboratory. And to demo its capabilities, I had a camera outside of the lab pointing into the booth. So, of course, Seth parked himself in front of it and waved at me while I was looking at the display. But basically, you know how some Emirates first class 777 suites have that they're in the center section, so they don't have windows, but they have a mock window with a screen showing yeah, sure. a camera feed of what's outside. So basically the concept is like that, where if anyone has flown on any modern 
narrow-body aircraft, you know, the lavatories on board are ridiculously, stupidly small. And instead of making them bigger somehow, they've decided, why don't we just make them appear bigger? Kind of like Boeing does with Boeing Sky Interior, where they didn't actually make the seats any bigger or the airplane any bigger on the Max. They just, you know, made it look prettier. So they, they were just displaying that you can show anything on this camera and we use other lighting to make the laboratory seem less annoyingly small than it is. There was also a like flight status display in the lab, like a moving map sort of situation. Did you, yeah, I don't know if you saw that. It was in on the side mirror. I like, did. It was a screen thing. behind a mirror, which is something you actually kind of see at some nicer hotels or venues like that. So it, they're just showing that you can do, you can display anything you want. It, it seems like a pricey way to go, but an interesting way to use a flexible OLED screen. This seems like the first step to displaying like a countdown timer. That's what I said. That's exactly yeah, what I said got, on the spot. Like time is expired. You're taking too much to, in the lab. Time to get leave. out. Other interesting things, there was a Chinese seat vendor there that caters to a domestic Chinese airline, and they mentioned the ARJ21 and C919, had some interesting features. So in economy, well, in business class, you know, a lot of seats have like a privacy slider that says, or a button that lights up a light that says, wake me up for meals or, or leave me alone. And some other airlines have taken a physical approach to that with a sticker or something. But these seats for the Chinese market, and I guess really any other market, there's a little slider on the seat. You slide it to the left and it says, leave me alone. You slide it to the right, it says, wake me up for meal service. So I thought that was an interesting way to do that. So if you're sleeping on a red eye but still want your little breakfast, you, they can either leave you alone or wake you up. That was nice. I like that. that yeah, that little innovations. Like, a, like an easy it, thing. Yeah. Yeah. It also showed how long product development in this space takes because there was another slider that had a picture of a little like coronavirus virus indicating whether or not the seat had been sanitized or not. So I feel like that might be a product of the 2020-2021 product development life cycle that's just now being shown now. But you could change that out quickly and have it show whatever you want. But that's going to be a whole nother round of certification. We need to certify that sticker. Sure, sure. Why not? <laughs> Was there anything else that you saw? I mean, I realize we're talking a lot about seats this year and, and in the past yeah. we've talked about connectivity. We've talked about in-flight entertainment. Have we reached the point where, where yes, there's development there, but it's starting to slow down because we've kind of hit a milestone or hit a plateau with those yeah. types of things where where there's kind yes of a, no. we need to yeah. see where to I go from like, here? There were some new screens that were on display, mini LED and OLED that's 42 inches, things like that. But a lot of them are 2025 time frame. Yeah. So a lot of this stuff, again, with the way the product development life cycle here goes, is all of the new entertainment things, they were announced and revealed at the show last year. And now they're mm -hmm. announcing orders for those things, like Panasonic announced for its new Ostrova entertainment system, a massive order from United, putting those on new 787-whatevers and the A321neo XLR, I think, starting from 2025. 2025. So Last year was the product announcement. This year was the customer announcement. Next year, maybe, is, hey, this thing is flying. And then at that point, maybe we get to see we'll do what's, it all coming, over again. what's coming next. But interestingly, it seems like that product lifecycle might be different moving forward. Because a lot of the talk, especially from Panasonic and another company, Zodiac, was upgradability of the hardware we're installing now. Where in the past, you installed a screen, and the screen had the processor 
and all the RAM, the memory, all that stuff in the screen itself. And if you wanted to upgrade that, you have to tear out the entire thing, throw it away or recycle it, whatever, sell it to another airline, and then install an entirely new system. But now they have more, not recyclability, but more upgradability in mind, where rather than throwing the system away, you can the processor for the Panasonic one at least isn't in the screen itself. It's in the seat box underneath and they can take out a card, take out the processor chip from 2020 and put a new one from 2025 in when the time comes. Over at Zodiac, they have a little bar underneath where like the USB port is and the headphone jack. And when USB-A goes out of fashion, they can just easily swap that off and swap a new one on for Bluetooth low energy or having two USB-C jacks and stuff like that. So they're more like platforms rather than standalone systems at this point. So I don't really think we'll be seeing any new entertainment systems in the the near future. But Seth might have a different take. No, I think you're right. right? There's going to be little upgrades here and there. And Safran is not the only one with that idea of sort of upgrading the bar instead of the whole screen. Yeah, Panasonic's doing the same thing. Yeah, we're seeing it in a lot of places. So the modular nature, all those things. It is smart. It is good. It will be installed eventually. These things take time to develop and then certify and then convince airlines to buy and then install. And it's all well and good. And in some ways, Jason likes to complain about this in every conversation we had. It doesn't matter because none of the content is high quality. Enough oh, anyway. it's true. It's true. They talk up our, our screen is 4K <laughs> UHD HDR 10 plus, And then the content you watch is 480i in the wrong aspect ratio SDR. So none of it matters. So that might be the next frontier of making this content better is getting getting actual actual quality content when when you ask them about that they're like oh we provide the capability but if you want to know about the content you gotta talk to those guys over there they're not wrong i just don't like the answer yeah well all right well if anything else happens in the show we can chat about it next week but let's close out the show with a few things worth mentioning so It is closing the first week of June. The third week of June rolls around, and we're talking not about what's in the airplane, but the actual airplane itself. Of course, I'm talking about the Paris Air Show. That's coming up the third week of June. We'll have much more to talk about during and after the Paris Air Show. But one of the pre-Paris Air Show things that has already happened is the unveiling of the first Riyadh Air 787 livery. There will be two of them. And this one is a a very purple purplish and blue kind of a starry night meets Tron thing going on. Okay. And I like it. I don't think it's the going to be the livery that it I think it's going to be, you know, akin to kind of an Air New Zealand thing where there's maybe a handful of planes that look like this and then the rest of them that operate in the hot desert Yes, probably not be painted in very dark colors. Very different choice, at least on the onset from Saudia, which uses, I guess you could call it beige sand colored aircraft that I'm sure in part to taupe, sure, in part to reduce the sun radiation, heating up the insides of those aircraft and deteriorating the paint. They chose very appropriate color for their location. And then Riyadh Air is like, yeah, forget all that and science and everything. Let's make them as pretty as we can regardless of the conditions these things will be flying into. This makes perfect sense because this particular aircraft, and I brought it up as part of the Paris Air Show, because this particular aircraft, which is a Boeing 787-9, it's Boeing's aircraft at the moment in Riyadh Air Livery. The registration is N8572C. 
And that particular craft will be on display at the Paris Air Show. So certainly, this is a special livery. And who knows if Riata even actually ever takes delivery of this particular 787. Ian, there's only one thing I want to know. Yes, sir. Did this aircraft previously belong to Heinen? So close. Oh, no? So close. No, this is line number 1128, formerly destined for Mayotte Mongolian Airlines. Really? Oh, I would not have yeah. called that. So huh. now it's going to the Paris Air Show as part of the Riyadh Air Tour. But who knows whether or not this particular airframe will ever end up Could being, it still go know, being delivered to, to Mongolia? I, I didn't wasn't aware that they canceled their orders. Maybe this is just a such a temporarily slapped on you know what I don't know delivery that it could go back to that I didn't hear of this aircraft. I think it's an NTU, but I don't okay. know what they shifted around to take that deal. But that's we'll put a picture in the show notes. Okay. It looks it's pretty. Things that don't look pretty. New York right now is experiencing heavy smoke and low visibility because of all of the wildfires that are burning in Canada. And so today, the LaGuardia and Newark both went into ground delay programs and ground stops because of low visibility. So not uh, a great, great thing. And no, uh, I'm hopefully, glad to not be home right now. I keep getting yeah. pictures from friends and family and it looks... Kind of hellish. So thanks for that, Canada. I have some friends and family leaving JFK tonight, and I hope they're able to get out. But so far, JFK seems okay. I saw one JetBlue flight diverted, oddly, to Newark earlier, and is shuttling back to JFK now. weird New York microclimate. Yeah, you, you never know. But yeah, this situation doesn't seem to be getting any better before it gets any worse, unfortunately. So I just can't believe all that's coming from wildfires in like Nova Scotia. Yeah. That's crazy. And we'll stay at LaGuardia, in fact, and talk about the continued saga of JetBlue and Spirit. JetBlue- Oh, yeah. I forgot about this. Is agreeing to give Spirit's LaGuardia, the entirety of LaGuardia's assets, entirety of their assets at LaGuardia to Frontier. So as part of this, they- Pending. Frontier Pending. Will pick up, well, Pending as part of this agreement, through. if it's approved- is part of this agreement, if it's approved, Frontier will pick up six gates and 22 slots. Ooh, that's some good stuff. You don't just find those lying around on eBay. That's you really millions don't. and millions and millions of I don't millions know. The Marine Air Terminal seems like the sort of thing that might show up there every now and then. Yeah. That's where the gates <laughs> are. True, so consider that. Yeah. One of the challenges, and you know, the Marine Air Terminal is a glorious historic building, the waiting area at least, the Sort of the outside, the, the pre-secure yeah. side the, is, the is gate area though is definitely not designed to handle six high density A three twenty ones departing at any given time. That would no, be it was great bad. for the Delta shuttle when there were only a few aircraft going at any given time, maybe fifty people on board. But and running, when you slap a, yeah, a, a two hundred and thirty passenger A three twenty one, it's bad. So it's and real minimal bad. concessions. It's whatever. Like right, take the slots you can get, take the gates you can get. 22 slot pairs is glorious, and who knows if that's enough to convince the, I guess, DOJ or a judge who's going to hear this case. To let I mean, it would, I think it would have to be a judge at this point because the yeah. DOJ has already sued. When was the last time, I don't even know, that this many slot pairs were transferred at LaGuardia? Because these are coveted, and it's yeah. not just the slot pairs, it's the gate space. 
too. This many? Would it have to be U.S. Air and American? I don't think there were that many. I don't many, think it was that many. I don't think there were that many divested then. And prior to that would have been the Delta and U.S. Airways trade between LaGuardia and DCA. Yeah, those were trades. That wasn't just a here, yeah, take I them kind of situation. I can't remember if they also had to divest some as part of that. But yeah, this is a big chunk of LaGuardia Ops. And makes me mad. <laughs> I don't Why want those going to Frontier. I want them to stay with Spirit and Spirit to remain a thing. I, I'll fly Spirit. I won't fly Frontier if I can help it. That's fair. So let's close the show because I know it's getting late where you are and we're running out of things to talk about. But let's close the show with some news that I think we'll be talking about next week. At least I hope we'll be talking about next week because perhaps it's good news for Mexican-US relations. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg is traveling to Mexico to meet with Mexico's President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. There we go. I got all the names in. Nailed it. They are going to be talking, at least according to the Mexican president, they're going to be talking about Mexico's aviation safety rating, which the FAA assigns. And as we've talked about multiple times on the podcast before, Mexico's rating is currently not category one, which means they cannot begin any new flights to the US at this point. And code shares so, were suspended. And code shares. Maybe yes. an even bigger deal. And so they've been keen to regain their status. And so we had heard June would actually be the month to make that happen. So maybe this is it. Just a quick update on the LaGuardia smoke situation. Philadelphia is now also seeing traffic delays, inbound traffic from the FAA owing to the smoke. So fantastic. Ah, it's moving yep. further south. Not good. Awesome. And on that note, <laughs> just a bundle of joy for you guys today. Good luck getting home. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I live in Germany now. There you go. We'll have updates on wildfire events. Hopefully, we can say that we're done with them, but I don't think that's ever going to be the case, and and certainly not this summer. We'll have updates on the US-Mexico aviation safety rating for next week, and anything else that pops up in the last few days of the Aircraft Interiors Expo show that Seth and Jason are both at. This, however, concludes this particular episode of Avtalk, episode 219. Seth Miller from Paxx.Aero, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Always. Thank you. And I will let you gentlemen get off to bed. I'm sure you have a busy day ahead of you. Everyone else, thank you so very much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Seth, do you want to sing us out? No. Oh, no. Thank you. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Thank you.